Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. I'm Mark Quanstrom. And I'm Tara Beth Leach. And this week we're going to take a pause from our conversation and uh, respond yes. to some uh, recent events that are happening at our very beloved seminary, Northern Theological Seminary. So, Mark, I wonder if you could give us a recap of uh, some of the facts. What's what's happening? Well, uh, for those who, who don't know, this podcast uh, emanates from Northern Seminary, which is a 110-year-old seminary, independent seminary in the suburbs of Chicago. And um, in last fall, a staff member uh, filed a grievance against the president of the university, of the seminary, rather. I'm sorry. I don't know the substance of the grievance. It wasn't public knowledge on purpose. And most of the faculty and staff were in the dark would not be the best way to say it. They were not cognizant of the response of the Board of Trustees because it was filed with the Board of Trustees, as in most academic institutions, there's uh, officers of the school, then there are faculty and staff, and uh, the officers answer to the, a board of trustees. And so um, this was all matter of course, appropriate, grievance filed against the senior officer, the president, the board of trustees, hears the grievance. The board of trustees um, did an investigation. And then this spring, Roy's report came out, which aired uh, some of the nature of the grievance. The board was uh, addressing the grievance. It seemed to the seminary that it was taking a bit long, but it is the case that these things take longer than most people like. But the president then uh, resigned in response to the grievance filed and the board's action. Um, but the president the president resigned. That's all we know mm-hmm. as a matter of course. Um, that's all we know. Um, but it has been distressing for the staff and faculty of Northern mm-hmm. to um, have this a uh, part of Northern. Mm-hmm. The faculty and staff, by organizational design, were not a part of the conversation between the Board of Trustees and the president. But the faculty and staff are on record as supporting the ones who the one who filed the grievance, and the faculty and staff at Northern are distressed uh, because it's calling into question the goodness of Northern. If Northern is known for anything, it's known as a place of Tove, mm-hmm. and so students are a bit confused about this, and uh, faculty and staff are navigating um, what they never thought they'd have to navigate. And there's a whole lot of conversations going on between faculty and staff and board of trustee members as we are trying to figure out um, the most redemptive way forward. Those are basically the facts of the matter, which is all I want to speak to right now. But as... 
podcast hosts of a podcast about theological integrity, where theological convictions should manifest themselves in manifest themselves in particular practices reflective of our theological convictions. Um, we didn't feel like we could continue doing this podcast without at least acknowledging uh, what's going on at the institution that we are still serving. That's right. And for me as a former student of Northern Theological Seminary, and I'm not just a former student, but I have stayed quite involved uh, in the life of, of the community. And we are sad. We are lamenting. It's been disorienting. It's been confusing. It's, it has been a storm that has been swirling. These are these are real people, the board, their image bearers, the president is an image bearer, the faculty is an image bearer, the staff, they are image bearers. And, and so it's, it's been quite disorienting because it was at Northern Seminary where I saw this vision, this hopeful vision of what an alternative community and an alternative organization or institution can look like. One that bears witness to the goodness or tove, as Scott McKnight often says, of God. Uh, Rodney Stark talks about the early church being an island of mercy and a world of squalor and misery. In other words, the church ought to be an alternative place, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, a place that is a is a island of goodness, an island of love, an island of mercy, an island of grace in a world that is surrounded by misery. And I think so many of us had hope for that. We believed that, that Northern Seminary might be that type of place. Of course, not without brokenness and, and spaces. I mean, we are sinful beings, which right. we're going to get at. We are sinful beings. And so it's it's not that we thought that we had this utopian view of what Northern ought to be like. But we also had the hope that it still would be that alternative society. And so... We're grief-stricken. We're sad and we're disoriented. And confused and disoriented is really a good way to describe it. And, well, and distressed. There are a lot of questions about the process. Mm -hmm. A lot of questions about the process. There's a desire on everyone's part for justice and redemption, which are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Um. But we're kind of living in this space where we have been confronted by the fallenness of this world mm -hmm. and its manifestation among devout followers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. No one at Northern is questioning their relationship to the Lord. No one is wondering about their devotion to Christ. These are all people that we will be in the coming kingdom with. Mm -hmm. And yet we find ourselves um, 
victimized by the and players in um, the sinfulness of fallen creation. Mm -hmm. And the reason this is, uh, we're not just simply interrupting our programming. I mean, we're talking about our theological convictions and how uh, how they inform our practice. And so it, it's not incongruous to move from a conversation about incarnation, and it's not incongruous to move from a conversation about Christ as fully human and fully divine, the incarnate God, to a conversation about how does a follower of Jesus Christ navigate a fallen world? And can a follower of Jesus Christ be victimized by sin in a fallen world? And so we find ourselves in a place of having to navigate um, evidence of the fallenness of creation as followers of Jesus Christ. That's right. And we don't like that evidence often. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yes. And we don't like to believe that we are inadvertent or intentional participants in the fallenness of creation. That's right. We don't. And the mystery for us, and I think the challenge for us, is in the claim that we make as followers of Jesus that it is possible to live in this world um, as full image bearers of Christ, and it is possible to live in this world without necessarily succumbing to the fallenness of creation. Let me Let me try to flesh that out a little bit to coin a phrase. So what we claim is that God was incarnate. The Word became flesh. And we claim that this Word that became flesh was without sin. So Jesus the Christ was fully human and fully divine, but fully human without sin. Um, that is an incredibly challenging to how we live and a provocative claim that a human person born into this world could be in this world without participating in its fallenness. But that's what we claim, that Christ was fully human and yet without sin. I think that popular evangelicalism would say that because we're human, um, we are, first of all, inevitably fallen and sinful, instead of, first of all, image bearers of mm -hmm. our God. Mm -hmm. And I think we move from that to say it is because we are human that we are inevitably sinful. Mm -hmm. But if it is because we are human that we are sinful, then we have Christological problems. Yeah, we do. Then Christ obviously was not fully human. He was more than human. But the Christ as fully human and fully divine means that we as humans are not sinful because we're human. We're sinful because we're fallen, which is a really important distinction we are not essentially sinful. We are essentially good. 
but fallen, but marred, but defaced. I'm not denying the doctrine of original sin. I'm just not saying that is not what defines us first. And so the challenge for us as followers of Jesus Christ is to be followers of a sinless human who was fully sinless in this fallen world, the challenge for us is to be followers of this Christ in the way that he calls us to follow. How do we live the promise of being fully human? And can we live like he does? Is that possible? Is that possible to live in that vision of holiness um, and goodness as fallen beings. So, Christian tradition says, has different answers to that Mm -hmm. question, right? Right. Roman Catholics say, yes, it is possible to be saints. It's post-mortem for Roman Catholics, but they declare people to have realized the fullness of holiness or realized holiness in this world. Fullness might be an overstatement. But they have saints. Mary was without sin in Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, which leads me to my favorite joke about Mary. If I, I'm going to say <laughs> oh, it. You can edit it out if you want to, Chaz. Chaz is grimacing. <laughs> so Jesus is, caught, Jesus is with the ones who want to stone the adulterous woman. And he's in the crowd, and we all know what Jesus said. Jesus says, if any of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And a rock from the back of the crowd comes and hits the poor woman in the head. And Jesus turns around and says, Mom. (laughs) That's a good one. The point is Roman Catholicism believes that it isn't death that's sanctifying. It's the spirit that's sanctifying. The Greek Orthodox, with their emphasis on iconography, believe that folks can be holy in this world. Of course, the Wesleyan tradition uh, introduced the possibility of holiness um, in this world. Um, some say that we don't take the fallenness of humanity seriously enough, and we're maybe maybe semi-Pelagian in that. Uh, but then there are other, other brothers and sisters in Christ who say, no, the, f- the fallenness irreparably harmed us, and the danger of thinking we can be holy in this world is a danger of presumption and pride. Um, And so different Christian traditions have different answers to that. With that said, and we all embrace the imputation of righteousness, we're as righteous as we're ever going to be by virtue of Christ's righteousness. But with that said, I think we would all agree, regardless of whether or not it can be fulfilled, we would all agree that we are called to holiness and we are called to be representatives of the Christ. Yeah, it was Athanasius who said he became like what we are so that we might become like what he is. So um, all Christian traditions call us to greater and greater Christ-likeness. That's right. We can table whether or not it can be fulfilled Mm -hmm. for the sake of this conversation. Um, but, But what's true is Christ was fully human, without sin. Right. And Christ spent a lot of time teaching 
us to live in his likeness. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Correct. Jesus did not teach that and say, I'm going to tell you this vision of how to be an alternative society to embody my holiness, but you are just so plagued with sin that there will be no way that you will ever be able to live this vision. Uh, Jesus prayed for us in the garden that the world would see God in us because of our unity and our love for one another. The Apostle Paul implored that we become imitators of God. And Peter said um, that uh, we can be divinized, mm -hmm. that, uh, that God's fullness can live in us by virtue of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, which is why this is distressing when, when institutions and persons live below the call. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, is, it is confusing, distressing, and provokes lament. And I wonder, too, because we have so personalized and individualized sin, that we are so prone to being complicit when we are in the middle of cultural moments or institutions where there is systemic sin happening that and and what happens when 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 it's systemic sin is when it becomes cultural when something happens that it becomes normalized whether it's ignorant power or abuse of power or misuse of power to some degree uh it becomes normalized and it becomes cultural and then it becomes systemic, right? It becomes embedded. And, and I think in American evangelicalism, we are inclined to define sin fairly narrowly as personal. That's right. Individualistic. Right. right. Um, volitional. Mm -hmm. And not as, as the Bible describes it, as the best of our Christian traditions describe it, as, as an infection, mm -hmm. as... Uh, including principalities and powers, mm -hmm. we tend to see sin as personal, individual, volitional, and not a, and not systemic. That's right. Not institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we are blindsided by sin when it takes on an institutional face mm -hmm. or is embedded in systems. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we know what to do with it there and how to respond to it when it manifests, mm -hmm. manifests itself in those places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to a degree, I mean, it's, I, I think to a degree, it's always manifested within institutions to a degree. It's just what we, ha what we see is it, is it flares up like what we've seen at Northern. I mean, because to a degree, sin is a disruption okay. of shalom. Right. Like yes. in the beginning, we yes. see God's original intention of God's right. cosmic symphony. Uh, the world was in order as it should be. Uh, humanity, they were in right relationship with one another and right relationship with God and right relationship with creation. And then when sin and brokenness enter the world or when the fall happens, this cosmic symphony, this harmony, this mutuality, this vision of shalom is disrupted and so we live in a world where that disruption is always going to be a reality. And we live in a world where institutions, we are going to catch glimpses of that. 
And I think that's really important also to think of sin as this disruption of Salome, where there's just this out-of-jointness in the world. We're always going to catch glimpses of institutions to a degree being out of joint, because that's the backdrop of the world that we live in. But just because it's the backdrop doesn't mean that Christians throw their hands up in the air, because it goes back to this idea that he became like what we are so that we might become like who he is. And and it's also this idea of us tilting our lives forward to this vision of, of this new heaven and new earth, of this eschatological reality, of believing that is it, it is impinging on the present. So the task of the follower of Jesus Christ is to not only um, seek after Christ's likeness in their person, but also to seek for a holiness and an harmony mm-hmm. in the institutions yes. Yes. of this world. There it is. So, so we can illustrate it with the institution of marriage. Marriage is hard work because there are two fallen creatures, and then when you introduce children, it even gets worse because you're adding more sinful fallen creatures into the mix, right? Mm-hmm. So the institution of marriage was designed by God to be a holy um, we can say sacramental, if not mm-hmm. sacrament, sacramental. We, our tradition doesn't believe it as a sacrament, but a holy place where God can be discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, institution of marriage. Mm-hmm. But with when you introduce fallen creatures into that institution, the institution can become destructive mm-hmm. and harmful. Mm-hmm. It is the task of the believer to not only be as Christ-like as the believer can be. It is the task of the believer to make the institution of marriage as representative of the kingdom as mm-hmm. it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we think in terms of redemption in, I don't know that we think of redemption in those terms always. I think we think primarily of redemption as personal salvation. Right. And so we don't, do the hard work of asking the question, is this institution representative of the kingdom? Right. And so then when the institution isn't, we're surprised, dismayed. I don't know what else I would say. Surprised and dismayed. But we ought not to be resigned. Right. We ought to be pushing for kingdom the kingdom in the institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we're, which is why the faculty and staff at Northern are lamenting. Mm-hmm. We want Northern to be the place of goodness mm-hmm. and truth and righteousness. But again, I think we sometimes uh, are not diligent enough and are not critical enough of polity or processes that make up the institution. Mm -hmm. And sin becomes accommodated in really subtle and nuanced ways. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to be talking about this. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about sin as personal Mm -hmm. and sin as systemic Mm -hmm. so that we might fully proclaim the promise of the kingdom. That's right.
Um, I think we have a lot of listeners who have been subject to institutional sins. Mm -hmm. Now, it's always, it is always enacted by a person. The mm -hmm. institution is not anything other than the collection of persons, mm -hmm. right? But Christians sometimes are not attentive enough to the ways in which institutional activities are not as reflective of the kingdom as they should be, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about how to be followers of Jesus Christ in a fallen world where not only persons are fallen, but institutions are fallen, mm -hmm. systems are fallen. Mm -hmm. and, and, and how do we fulfill the promise of the kingdom? Now, we're going to need some help here, which is why we're going to invite Dr. Beth Felker Jones in to participate in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but Tara Beth and I have both been subject to being sinned against by virtue of an by virtue of institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, we I'll talk about that someday. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, policies that. Um, were usual, normative, but for that reason, we're not, not destructive. Right. Mm. Which leads us as followers of Jesus Christ to always be confessional. Mm. Um, we don't stand apart from fallen creation. Uh, we don't stand apart from uh, the infection of sin and the greatest protection against being participants in the fallenness of this world, the greatest protection against it is to be conscious that we are fully capable of the sin we would condemn. Yeah, confessional and accountable because we yes. aren't always self-aware. I mean, culture is the air that we breathe. Right. And when sin is infecting the culture around us and we aren't held accountable to those who are able to see the ways that we are participating in these systems and, and not just accountable, you know, because so we every leader who stewards power must surround themselves with people who are going to call them on the carpet and name the things where their lives or the system or the policies that they are creating are not reflective of the kingdom of God. And then also I would add examination, um, prayer of examine and corporate examine. I mean, institutions, I believe, have got to learn the practice of corporate examination. Yes. So we have confession mm -hmm. and we have accountability mm -hmm. and we have honest, authentic examination. Yeah. Yeah, I, and again, I think it's because we do not take seriously enough how sin can infect institutions right. and sin. We don't. We don't. I think I think as of late, we're we're kind of afraid to talk about sin culturally. We're okay with. I mean, I we do I see a move. You. We do see a move in talking about systemic and organizational. Right. But sin is just a funny word. It's has a lot of baggage. Well, another cardinal truth of the Christian faith is that is contrary to the enlightenment notion of the human person, 
which says uh, we're born good and innocent and it is systems that are corrupting. Hmm. The Christian faith says, no, we are born inclined to sin. Wow. And the reason the systems and institutions are corrupted is because persons inhabit those systems and institutions and design them. There's not a law in the books that a person didn't write. Right. There was a person who wrote the slavery codes that empowered people to enslave other humans. Right. So they created the system that then perpetuated enslavement mm. of other human persons. So again, to the point, our culture being formed as much maybe more so by enlightenment notions mm -hmm. of the human person than Christian notions, um, would say that it is humans who are born innocent and good and are corrupted by systems. It is the Christian faith that says, no, we brought this into the world. It is me in my marriage that makes it less a part of the kingdom. It isn't Debbie first, it's me first, mm. which is why confession accountability and examine are crucial for the follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to say that there's no greater holiness than the holiness of confession. Mm. That one is no more holy than when one is before our Lord seeking his forgiving grace. Wow. But we have to talk about all of this. We do. We do. And we will. Um, we're not using the distress of Northern as the occasion, um, but we are responding to the circumstances mm -hmm. that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. um, I think Northern will m move in a redemptive direction. I oh, think I do. Northern will come through this. Ultimately, Northern is the faculty, the staff, and the students. And they, they, I, in, in faculty meetings and in staff meetings, which I've been a privilege to be a part of, I have just come away humbled by the by the desire on the part of all concerned to create a culture of goodness and truth and honesty and righteousness at Northern. But I think as Christian leaders, we have to think in terms of whether or not the institutions we lead are places of goodness. We really do. So next week. We're going to invite Dr. Beth Felker-Jones to talk about sin as personal mm -hmm. and sin as systemic mm -hmm. so that we might be better followers of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to The Pastor's Table. Um, we're here because we believe in the work that pastors do. Mm -hmm. We're here because we believe in the promise of the kingdom. It is an eschatological vision that drives mm -hmm. this. We believe we're, we're here because, as Tara Beth says so well, because we're hopeful. Mm -hmm. And um, if this is prompting you to consider better what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a fallen world, then so be it. So, friends, may God bless you and the gifts and the grace of ministry. May God nourish you as you try to live faithfully in a world where there is disruption after disruption, brokenness, pain, and hurt. May the Spirit guide you and empower you and propel you somehow to imitate Jesus in all that you do and all that you are and all the places that you will go. <laughs>